You are listening to Episode 17, the final episode of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Keep listening at the end of this episode for a sneak preview of the sequel. Previously on Quarter Share. Around 22.30 we set the watch, and I could almost hear Lois sigh as we settled into the normal routine of sailing between the stars. It didn't often strike me, this romantic notion that we were out here in our little ship, spreading our sails to catch the solar wind. But when it did, I remembered a snatch of ancient poetry that my mother used to recite to me, as a kind of lullaby when she tucked me in. I must down to the seas again, to the lonely sea in the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. Cookie and Pip both congratulated me, but I really didn't feel like it was much of an accomplishment. I was still slopping coffee and slicing bread. True, I could move up should something open up, but having been through the whole rigmarole to find out what I might like best, the end result was I still didn't know. Chapter 28, St. Cloud Orbital, 2352, February 17. We docked at St. Cloud Orbital right on schedule. It was early afternoon, and the captain declared liberty almost immediately. By arrangement, Pip took Biddy and Roan out to scope out the flea market and rent a storage locker for short-term secure storage nearby. Cookie and I put together a pasta bake and garlic bread for the evening buffet. We suspected, rightly it turned out, the few people would be aboard for dinner except the few who needed to be. Everything was ready by 1600. Cookie asked, when was the last time you went out to dinner? He stopped wiping down a counter and thought for a long moment. I confess it has been a while, young Ishmael, I said. Why do you ask? Because tonight is a good night for you to go. Dinner is already prepared and only needs to be put onto the buffet. The dessert's even warming in the oven. You deserve a night out. You should go. I can certainly solo one dinner service, especially first night in port. He smiled. You are correct, young Ishmael, he said. And there is an old friend who has a restaurant here. I'll do it, he exclaimed and patted me on the cheek. Very thoughtful of you, young Ishmael. Thank you. With that, he sailed out of the galley and left me alone with the pasta. About then, of course, Bev stuck her head in the galley door. Hey, Ish. You know you're out of coffee out here. <laughs> I laughed with her and proceeded to brew a nice fresh urn of Sarabanda Dark while we still had it. Cookie and Pip had been horse trading for the last three days. I expected to see all the stores we'd reserved for trade to be moved out of here on St. Cloud. The freezer had been emptied of Cobia and Marguerite. Instead of selling the Sarabanda as we intended, we'd sold nearly the entire ship's stock of Arabasti and bought another fifty buckets of the Sarabanda. Cookie had even filled the freezer with dried mushrooms, which he and Pip traded ruthlessly on St. Cloud. Almost all of the Sarabanda was on the block, as were about half of the mushrooms. In return, we were restocking with Arabasti and filling the extra freezer with lamb and a local fish called Munta, sort of a cross between a salmon and a sea bass in flavor. The lamb would make a nice break from the beefalo, but it was also Cookie's favorite meat. We had some root crops coming aboard, which would store very well in any cool dark space, as well as more fresh greens. When all the trades had cleared and the ship restocked, Pip claimed we'd broken even with consumption, basically eating free since Marguerite. Cookie thought we were down about a kilocred. Either way, it turned out to be a marvelously effective way to feed the crew very well without costing the ship very much at all. 
The empty container turned out even better. Pip's assessment had been right on the mark. Mr. Maxwell had procured four different mushroom varieties, not just one. So the value of almost a full container of mushrooms netted the ship upwards of two hundred kilocreds. They even sold the beefalo rugs for another ten. As it stood at the last update, the empty container was again empty. I reviewed the numbers once more and wondered to myself if the crew knew that Pip was almost single-handedly responsible for throwing an extra two hundred and twenty kilocreds in the profit pool. Not all of that was distributed to share, of course, but it helped. Just then the timer beeped and I started setting out dinner on the buffet. Any feelings of malaise evaporated in the warmth of the pasta, the wonderful smell of the garlic bread, and the cheerful greetings from the few crew who came to the mess deck for dinner. I could sure do worse. Right near the end of dinner, Pip came in wearing a ship suit that had seen better days. He grabbed some dinner and sat on the mess deck with me. What did you get into? I asked. Wet paint, he said between bites. He held up his hands, showing me black splotches on his hands and under his fingernails. It'll be dry by morning, though. How's it look, the flea market? He slurped a little coffee and said, Excellent, just perfect. There's a lot of sheep stuff, but also some very nice leathers, goat and sheep, and a good supply of carved wood. I didn't see a lot of stone or metalwork, so the buckles and stones should work well here. The clientele seemed to be pretty upscale, but I guess that's because poor shepherds can't afford the ticket up on the shuttle. Sounds about like we anticipated. He nodded again and sat back with his coffee in hand. Cookie's got his stores lined up, and they should be over in the next couple of days. The empty container may stay empty, leaving here. We really can't make much on a container of raw wool. There doesn't seem to be commercial quantities of textiles available. He shrugged. Sometimes winning involves just getting to the next port. Dinner was about over then, and he helped me clean up the mess deck and galley. I brewed a fresh half-urn of coffee before we headed for the gym. Had a good workout, but it occurred to me that I hadn't seen Sandy since just before the deck exam, and she wasn't on the track. Pip and I had the sauna to ourselves as well. Yep, it sure seemed like a big empty ship that first night in port. I got up when Pip did the next morning and headed for the galley. I didn't need to head out to the flea market yet, but I wanted to go with that first group. Pip and I had put all our goods into a duffel, and all I had to do was sling it onto the grav pallet for transport. It's not like it weighed that much, but it felt, I don't know, posh. Pip and I had an arrangement with the co-op to pool our sales for the purposes of cap, since neither of us had separate trade goods. It seemed like it should be complicated, but really it wasn't. Pip was setting up the omelet station. I made fresh coffee and set some biscuits to baking before Cookie showed up. "'Good morning, gentlemen,' he said cheerily. "'You do my old heart good by coming in and setting up perfectly without being told,' he sighed. "'We've been a long time since the galley has been such a well-oiled machine.' Pip looked askance to me, and I shrugged. "'Did you have a nice evening out?' I asked him. "'Yes, young Ishmael,' he said. "'It was lovely. "'I visited the establishment of one of my countrymen up on level five. "'We had grilled lamb and couscous and strong tea and much talk "'until the early morning stands. "'I feel tired but refreshed. "'All went well here?' "'I nodded. "'Oh, yeah. Dinner was easy. No problem. "'And today is the official start of your new trading empire?' "'Pip and I laughed. "'Well, perhaps,' I said. "'We're at least going to try to turn a little profit.' Pip made me an omelet, and I poured coffee for everybody. It was still a few ticks before the mess deck opened for breakfast, but I settled down with mine, thinking it would be some time before I had another chance to eat. By the time I'd finished, a few others had lined up on Pip's station, so I just took my dishes out to the dishwasher and stacked them there. As I was leaving, Cookie called, Best of luck! Pip looked over his shoulder and said, Keep me posted, and saluted with his spatula. I was still chuckling as I got to the birthing area and started changing into civvies. 
They were getting kind of not worn exactly, tired maybe. My good boots weren't all that good compared to some of the footwear I'd seen in the last five months. My jacket was little more than an outdated windbreaker, and my pants were what my mother called good solid trousers. Bleh. I put them on because that's all I had. I had a sudden insight into why people dressed up when they changed into civvies. After months of ship suits, as nice and practical as they were for what we did on a daily basis, putting on civvies ought to be something special. If I got new clothes, I'd have to get rid of these or take the hit on my mass allotment. But I understood why so many people did exactly that. I saw the boy toy belt hanging in the back of the locker then, and with a sudden burst of daring, I stripped out my old perfectly adequate belt and buckled on the supple leather with its gold medal and black dragon. I looked at myself in the mirror, and if I were perfectly honest, it looked a tad out of place. It didn't go with the rest of the outfit at all. It did, however, go with me. So I kept it on, scooped up the cargo duffel that Pip and I had packed the night before, slammed my locker, and headed for the cargo lock. I got there just after 0700. There was a crowd gathered already. I walked up to see what they were looking at and burst out laughing. When we first got the grav pallet for Mr. Cotton, I could see why it had been slated for salvage. It was pretty torn up. It would only lift about half its rated capacity. For our purposes, that was fine, since its rated capacity was in kilotons. We only needed to carry a few dozen kilos in style points. The pallet was now painted a matte black, and the top, where it had been heavily scarred by dropped loads and untold cargo calamities, was now covered with a uniform layer of pristine gray skid grid, the same nubbly rubbery matting that they laid down on cargo entries and engineering spaces where good footing was important. Along the skirting on all four sides, someone had stenciled McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative in a gray paint that matched the skid grid. Judging from the gray smudges on Biddy Murphy's cheek, I knew who'd done that. The black told me where Pip had found wet paint the day before. There was already a stack of gear on the pallet, including a basket with the banner and table coverings. I added my duffel to the pile, and we all stood there looking at it for a moment before Roan, the morning booth manager, took the tow handle and slid the pallet out of the lock. I stood there watching them go for a moment. I didn't really know what I felt. This crazy group of people going off on a great adventure that was no more exotic than a yard sale. The gray hairs were having as much fun as the kids. It was made all the more surreal when I thought that what they do in real life, when they're not selling trinkets at flea markets, is sailing a deep space leviathan between the stars. That wasn't exciting because that was just their job. You better hurry, Ishmael, they'll leave you behind. I turned to see the captain standing there beside me, looking at the parade streaming out of her ship and across the orbital's dock. I saw her by your leave, I said, saluting for what might have been the first time since signing the articles. The captain smiled at me, returned the salute, and said, Carry on, Mr. Wong, carry on. As I stepped out through the lock, I swear I heard Lois laughing. Thanks for listening to Episode 17 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Keep listening for a sneak preview of the sequel... The music is from The Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden.
listening to a sneak preview of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 1. St. Cloud Orbital, 2352, February 19. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. A classic good news, bad news scenario, if ever there were one. My name is Ishmael Horatio Wong, but when I was summoned to the captain's cabin, I figured my name was Mud. I thought the good news was that the McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative had gotten off to a tremendous commercial start there in St. Cloud. I thought the bad news was that one of the members of the co-op had been involved in a fight with the local authorities. As one of the ringleaders who got the co-op up and running, I was pretty sure Captain Jagon was going to have something to say to me about it. She did, but it wasn't what I expected. She had a way of doing that to me, and it wasn't the only thing I was mistaken about. Pip, my friend and co-conspirator in starting the co-op, caught up with me just as I was about to knock on the captain's door. "'You got summoned, too?' he asked. "'Yep. You know what she wants?' He shook his head, and we both took deep breaths. I knocked. "'Come,' the captain said from the other side of the door. Pip opened the door, and we marched in, trying to not look guilty of whatever it was. We stopped inside the door and braced to what passed for attention on a merchant freighter. Pip did the honors. Attendants Wong and Carstairs reporting as ordered, Sar! It did not bode well. They were all there, Captain Chagon, of course, and Mr. Maxwell, the first mate. I might have expected Mr. Maxwell, but Mr. Kelly, the chief engineer, and Mr. Cotton, the cargo master, were a surprise. All the division heads except Cookie, that specialist first chef, Ralph Al Maliki, but everybody called him Cookie who wasn't an officer. And all these officers were looking at Pip and I in a manner I could not quite identify. Something between fresh meat and dead meat. It did not bode well at all. The captain said, Thank you for coming, gentlemen. We have a situation that we need your help in resolving. Pip and I glanced at each other quickly. We were both trying to figure out which we, the captain, was referring to, and, for that matter, what resolving either Pip or I might be capable of doing. Yes, sir, I said, we'd be glad to help. I had no idea what I'd just committed us to, but it wasn't like we, that would be the Pip and me we, had a lot of choice in the matter. Mr. Carstairs, the captain said, I've reports from Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Cotton that you've been using the galley store's accounts to engage in trading in the last two ports. Yes, sir, Pip said. Cookie and I have been working on reducing the overhead burden of mess operations on the ship's operating budget. How has that worked out, Mr. Carstairs? she asked. I'm not sure, sir. I haven't seen the final accounting for St. Cloud. At Marguerite, I think we broke even, Pip answered. Broke even? the captain asked. Yes, sir. I think we took enough in trade to pay for mess ops and still feed the crew in the manner to which they have become accustomed, Pip replied. We prided ourselves on the quality of food on the lowest McKendrick. You think the captain prodded him again. Yes, sir. Pip was sweating a little. I could see the gleam on his temple. Cookie thinks we actually turned a small profit, but my numbers said we broke even there. And for the St. Cloud leg, she probed. I don't know, sir. I've been tied up with the co-op and haven't seen the latest figures for coffee trading. I see, she said. And she turned to me. Mr. Huang, I've heard a report that you actually taken and passed all four divisional half-share rating exams in the six months since you've been aboard. I was pretty sure she knew the answer to that, since it was on file in my personnel jacket, so I just played along. Yes, sir. 
And what will you do now that you have those ratings, Mr. Huang? I wasn't planning on doing anything in particular, Captain. I was just trying to see if there was a division I might like more than Stuart. And you were worried that you might be stuck ashore, she prompted. Well, not worried so much, sir, I replied, more like hedging my bets against unfortunate circumstances. And do you want to leave the Lois? she asked. No, sir, I responded, perhaps too vigorously. I like it here. I have friends here. I shut my mouth and clenched my teeth so I wouldn't blurt out anything more ridiculous like, Please don't make me leave. Pip and I traded glances again. Neither one of us had a clue where this was all heading. The captain studied us for a few heartbeats. I'm sure it was a smaller number for her than for me. But finally she glanced around the table, and the officers all gave a little nod. Mr. Maxwell swiveled his gaze in Pip's direction. The first mate was a deliberate man. He did everything for a reason. He had a reputation for being so robot-like that some considered that an insult to the warmth and personality of robots. Personally, I liked him and trusted him as much as any person I'd ever known. Mr. Carstairs, you recently passed the cargoman exam and are qualified to take a full share cargoman berth. The Andrew W. Mellon is docked here at St. Cloud and has posted a cargoman berth for which we are prepared to give you the highest recommendation. Would you care to pursue it? Pip blinked. Sir? I could hear the confusion in his voice. Frankly, I was just as confused as he was, but the theater of the absurd currently playing out in the captain's cabin was getting really interesting. Pip, the melon has a cargo opening, the captain translated. If you want it, we'll help you get it. Have I done something wrong, sir? he finally asked. Mr. Maxwell and the captain exchanged a look, and I have no idea what it might have been, but I would recognize it again if I ever saw it. Mr. Maxwell finally said, No, Mr. Carstairs, in fact you've done very well by the Lois, and we want to do what we can to help you. This is a legitimate opportunity, one of many, and I wanted you to know about it before we offered you another one. Myself, I was having trouble breathing by then. I kept waiting for the shoe to drop about the fight on the flea market, and they kept talking about opportunities. Sir, I'm with Mr. Wong. I like it here. I want to work with Cookie on the stores and see just how much good we can do. The captain asked, So you'd rather work here as a quarter-share steward than transfer to the melon and work full-share cargo? Is that what you're saying? Pip shrugged. Well, yes, sir. Sounds silly when you put it like that, but I like what I do here. Mr. Cotton spoke up then. You have amazing, yeah, skills, Mr. Costas. But I must tell you what you already know, yeah. We have no openings in cargo for a cargoman at the moment. Pip nodded. Yes, sir, I'm aware of that. You have a good crew. I know they all like it here as much as I do. But I wouldn't be able to do the kinds of trading on the melon that I can do here with Cookie. And the co-op is just getting started, too. That's okay, sir. I don't need a cargo slot. There was another weird little pause while the officers all nodded at each other, and then Mr. Kelly turned on me. Mr. Huang, I've been getting reports from the environmental section that you're spending time down there. Yes, sir, I responded promptly. You spent your breaks from galley duty to help them scrape sludge? Just once, sir, but I'd be happy to help them again. And Spec 1 Smith reports that you aided Spec 3 Ardell in swapping out Alchai matrices for the number 3 scrubber, he asked. Well, yes, sir. She needed a hand, and I was free for a couple stands. It was kind of fun in a slimy, wet, and mucky sort of way. Was that before or after you got your engine rating, Mr. Huang? After, sir. 
Miss Smith reports that you have some odd ideas about sludge, Mr. Wong. Would you care to share one or two of them? Um, well, sir, I thought perhaps we could use it as a base for compost. Compost, he said. Yes, sir. At Marguerite, I had an opportunity to visit a mushroom farm with Spec 3 Ardell. They grow all their mushrooms in a slurry made of hydroponic waste and chipped sludge. And you thought we might grow what? he asked. I don't know, sir. I was just interested in the idea. Lettuce, maybe, or fresh spinach. Maybe mushrooms. They don't seem to require much tending. I see. He asked, and did you enjoy working in the environmental section? I considered that for a bit before answering. Yes, sir. Yes, I did. Brillo, or Miss Smith, and Miss Ardell, and Mr. Gartner, too. I've worked with all of them, and I enjoyed it. The weird little pause-and-nod episode happened again. Finally, the captain said, Okay, gentlemen, here's the problem. Pip, you deserve a chance at Cargaman. Your stores trading for St. Cloud gave us a net profit of close to 35% on our stores budget. Not only did you cover the cost of feeding the crew for the last five weeks, but you've generated a very respectable surplus. Part of that is because we had a short hop over here for Marguerite. Part is just plain shrewd horse trading. You do us proud, Pip, and I'm grateful. The problem is I don't have a cargo slot to offer you. And there's another little problem we have to deal with. Spec 3 Avery. I'm sorry about that, Sar, I started. I don't know what happened at the co-op. I don't care about that, she said, waving a hand as if to shoo away a pesky fly. He's always been a hothead. More to the point, the tanker Audrey Moore has just hired him to work in their environmental section, so we're short-handed. I didn't know that, Sar. I knew he wanted to get onto a tanker, though. He mentioned it. Personally, I hope he enjoys it, the captain said. But that leaves us with a problem, and here's the solution that we want you gentlemen to help us with. Mr. Wong, Mr. Kelly said, I'm prepared to offer you an engineman slot environmental. Miss Smith has been consulted and is most enthusiastic. Are you interested? Uh, yes, sir, but what about the galley? Mr. Maxwell answered that with, We have several quarter shares available to us here. Mr. Kelly continued, We know you don't have the knowledge that Avery takes away, but the section crew down there can't say enough good things about you, and they want you, if you want to go. I looked at Pip then, because I felt bad I was getting promoted when he actually outrated me. And he'd been a quarter share for almost two full standards, while I'd barely been aboard six months. The captain interrupted my considerations by saying, We have another job in mind for Mr. Carstairs. We both looked back at her. Mr. Maxwell swiveled his gaze in Pip's direction. Mr. Costairs, your work in galley stores has contributed greatly to the welfare of the ship. While we cannot offer you a cargoman position in the cargo division, we can, however, offer you a raise in your current position. We need you to stay in the galley and help Cookie break in a new attendant, but we're prepared to raise your salary to scale for cargoman, along with a full share and mass quota with the proviso that you continue basically doing what you've been doing since Gugara. My brain vapor-locked at that point, but Pip, ever the wheeler-dealer, asked, So just so I understand it, I'm going to stay attendant rank on the books, but you're going to pay me as cargoman. Give me a full share in the cargoman mass allotment? Mr. Maxwell smiled. Yes, Mr. Costas, that is the crux of it. And I said, Just so I understand... Gregor's gone, and you want me to take his place in environmental as a half-share crewman? Pip is going to stay in the galley. We'll be getting a nice bump in pay and benefits, and we'll hire another quarter-share to take my slot on the mess deck. 
The captain nodded. Yes, Mr. Huang? The good news is you get a new job and don't have to make the coffee any more. The bad news is Mr. Carstairs has to stay in the galley and train another quarter-share hand. Pip and I looked at each other for a second before he turned to the gathered officers and said, Well, I did pretty well with the last one. Thanks for listening to this sneak preview of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from The Banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September 1928 by James Peter Conlon and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden.